Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I want to, I guess, kind of want to begin today by challenging our thinking a little bit. Actually, I hope I do that all the way through this sermon, but especially as we begin, uh, I want to train your thinking towards some of those little secular proverbs that we allow to infiltrate our lives, and we like to say them, but we don't really think about their meaning, and especially we don't, maybe we don't enough think about how untrue some of them are. Uh, For instance, and this is the primary one, so I'll just, in the interest of time, I'll just kind of camp out on this one. Have you ever heard it said, practice makes perfect? All right, now all of us have heard that, and maybe we've even said that from time to time, but I want to submit to you that there is not a coach alive who believes that's true. There's not a mathematician alive who believes that's true. There's not a musician alive who believes that that's true if they're at least on the, in, I start saying intelligent, aware side of the equation. And then maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, what's wrong? That practice makes perfect. Here, here's why I say it's not true. Uh, I had a history in, in my life, a period of time where I did music. I would never say that I was a musician, but I did music. I was thinking of that song, His Name is Wonderful. Uh, When I was a young child in elementary school, my parents made me take piano lessons. That lasted about six months. And they realized that I was not some Brian Cornish prodigy kind of person on the piano. All right? But they made me go to this lady, this mean lady. Actually, she wasn't a lady at all. She was just a woman. And they made me go to her house and my parents left me at her house at a piano where she would take a ruler and smack my hands if I did something wrong. Which was all the time. And then they made me go home and practice. That's torture. Don't do your children that way. Unless, of course, you want them to exceed in something. And so I learned there that no matter how much I practiced at home without my music piano teacher being there to help me, she was going to smack me on the hands with her ruler. You know why? Because I practiced wrongly. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Does that make sense? Right? If you practice it right, here's why I say a coach doesn't believe that. If a coach believed that practice made perfect, they would send the guys on the football team out to the field on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and the coaches would sit in the office. I mean, after all, it's hot out there. So send the boys out there to practice, and they'll be perfect on Friday if the statement's true. But the statement's not true. So a coach gets out there with them. And he doesn't use a ruler to crack them. He uses a helmet to crack them. Or actually, you know, lots of running usually is what's involved there. Perfect practice makes perfect. How does that relate to us when we come to do our church stuff? We're going to do something today at the end of this service. I hate to say it that way because it almost sounds like we're just kind of tacking it on to the end, which is not the case at all. Uh, actually, the focal point of the service now 
is going to be when we take the Lord's Supper and we participate together in that. It would be wrong for us to assume that just because we're going to do the Lord's Supper, that we're going to get it right. I know that sounds a little strange. It may be even a little bit offensive to hear that because after all, we're Baptists and we've done this for years. Many of us have done this for decades and we know how to do the Lord's Supper. Or do we? This is one of those times that we must get it right. It's not enough just to do it. We have to get it right. And so that argues, I think, now I've been here uh, over two years and kind of sort of well into my third year now, a couple of months at least, and, uh, and it's probably time for us to have this discussion. When it comes to doing this part of what we do as a gathered body that we call the church, we have to get it right. And one of the reasons that I know that's true is because we find a passage of Scripture in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is speaking to a church who did not get this right. And he has some pretty charged words to say to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now normally, when we come to this passage, we're only usually looking at a couple of verses in it. And those are the verses that talk about, you know, what God gave or what, yeah, what God got, what God gave to Paul about that last supper. And we'll use those verses in a few moments when we come down to actually participate in Lord's Supper together. But I want us to get the full context of what's going on here. One of the worst things here, if you want the sermon in a nutshell, here it is. One of the worst things that we can do. And as a matter of fact, it's, God has a label for this. It's called sin. Is that we come to this in a haphazard manner. If we come to this and it's just another one of those things we do as a church, we're getting it wrong and the Bible says that's sin. Let me just see what he has to say. In chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that is sick. Now, that's not that colloquial kind of term where we're saying sick as in they're awesome. You're like, that's sick, good. No, they're sick as in terminal. And they're so sick that Paul writes... This whole letter called 1 Corinthians, another whole letter called 2 Corinthians, and some scholars believe there's another letter somewhere in there that got lost. Probably it made everybody so mad that they burned it somewhere. I don't know. Paul's writing to a church that has all kinds of problems. It might have been the first Baptist church. We don't really know, but let's see what he has to say here. It was not the first Baptist church, I'll tell you that. But in the following instructions, now we're in chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. You catch that? Before, before we even start, Paul says, you're wrong. I'm not going to congratulate you on this piece that I'm about to say to you because you're wrong. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Let me just stop for a second and say, kind of give you a little bit of background. I'll give you more as we go. The Corinthian church. Now, it's probably a good place for us to make sure we get the full picture. The Corinthian church, as we like to refer to it, uh, we would be wrong if we assumed that this is one central location in the city of Corinth and everybody flocks there when it's time to go to church. The Corinthian church was a gathering of multiple house churches. That's first century Christianity. 
And so in this particular Greco-Roman city, they had multiple house churches called the church. And so when they would come together, what we would call the weekend today, uh, they had some practices that they regularly participated in. And so that's what he's referring to here in these first couple of verses. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church at one of those little house churches where you go, I hear that there are divisions among you. Stop for a second again. By now you're thinking, just read the verses. But let's make sure we get the picture. This church, one of the main problems that this church had was they were divided. As a matter of fact, you go read the first chapter. And into the second chapter, the first major issue that Paul deals with about this church and their problems is the fact that they're divided. You remember that passage where he says, if some of you say that I'm with Paul, and some of you say that I'm with Peter, and some of you say, well, I'm even better than that. I'm with Jesus. Paul says, you're sick. I hear that there are divisions among you. So let me just go ahead and remind us why it's 1042 by the clock at the back and we're all sitting in here together rather than in Sunday school. Every three months, roughly, there is a month that has five Sundays in it. And as a church, we decided that on those fifth Sundays, which comes around roughly once a quarter, four times a year more or less, Our church, which normally is divided in the way we worship, is going to come together as one and we're going to celebrate our unity as a church. Now one of the reasons we do that is because there are all kinds of things built into the life of the church that would divide us anyway. There's age grouping, there's stylistic preferences, there's scheduling, there's all those kind of things that keep us going one place to the next. There's the, you know, the youth are meeting over there and the children are meeting over there and the musicians are meeting over there and the preacher, who knows where the preacher is? And so we live our lives as a divided lot under the banner of Crestwood Baptist Church and I believe, and key leaders in this church believe it's really important for us on a consistent basis to come together and celebrate the unity that we have as a church. That's why when we come to do this, we do the Lord's Supper in here as a gathered body. That's why we try to do as many baptisms as we can on this day because we want the whole church to see that God is still changing lives of people. So we come to this time and we celebrate unity. In addition to that, when this service is over, we've got lots of business to do here before this service is over. You know, we're not even supposed to be finished till 11.30, plus I usually go 15, 20, 30 minutes, 45 minutes late, so who knows what time we'll finish. Cowboys play at 3, we've got lots of time. When this is over, we're all going to be invited to walk about 200 yards that way and eat. Hey, it's a Baptist gathering. You got to eat. Now, that's a good picture. What we're going to do today is a good picture of what church in first century Corinth was sort of like. Paul says when you come together to eat, uh, to do the supper, as we're going to see as we work through this, he's referring to a practice that that church had. Typical Corinthian first century life. 
And that is as these church people went to these house churches, on a regular basis they went and they consistently and regularly celebrated the Lord's Supper. But they had this communal meal alongside that or with that. Actually, it's all kind of blended in together. They called them love feasts. We call them dinner on the grounds. Not on the ground, although you're welcome to do that if that's your custom. They gather and they eat. That's in that context that Paul says, I have something against you. So now let's pick up reading again. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part. In other words, it doesn't surprise me. I know y'all. I know there are divisions there. He's already written about that in the early part of this book. Verse 19. For there must be... Now this is with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Paul is being... uh, What's the right word here? Um, He's kind of picking at them some. He's saying what is happening even though he knows they're not going to like it. So I'll back it up. I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Here's what he means by that. This division that they were finding in that church was mostly socioeconomic. That's normal in first century Roman life. It's not like America today, or some of you would say the America that we grew up in, some of us. Uh, First century Roman life was not such that you could start off at a low socioeconomic level and earn your way to a higher one. That didn't happen hardly ever in Roman society. If you were born rich, you were going to be in that upper class. If you were born poor, you were going to probably stay in that poor class. And if you were born a slave, there's almost no hope for you to grow out of it. Although there were ways... But it just didn't happen very often. And so what's happening now is that church is pulling their society norms into their practice. Practice makes perfect? Not necessarily. Because in this case, the practice, now I'm using the word in a different way, that they pull into what's going on there as a church now just celebrates the division. I'll talk about that as we go further here. So he... Kind of giggling them. Wait a minute, I can't say that in an Aggie church. Um, he's prodding them a little bit. And I believe it, in part, for there are, must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. You see, in first century Roman life, it was all about being recognized, it was all about status. I always love it on these days because I and the deacons wear suits to church on these days. And it never fails. Usually many people, not just one or two, come up to me and say, they don't really know what to say most of the time. (laughs) They recognize something's different. A lot of things in the way we do church separate us. Sometimes it's appearance. Sometimes it's the way we act. Sometimes it's 
the way we sit. As a matter of fact, you're going to leave here and go over to the Fellowship Hall before Two Long Family Life Center, and you're going to go there and you're going to sit down at a round table. There's only probably eight seats per table, roughly. And so you're going to be very careful when you walk in to find a table that suits you. Let me just tell you now, all the tables are roughly the same. They're all okay. They'll hold the weight of your food. But see, what makes the difference with the table is who's sitting there. We find lots of ways to divide as a church. And we've practiced that. Does that make us right? I really should finish reading this passage, so let's go ahead. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Well, there you go. Can't be a Baptist church. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then he gives us that teaching that Jesus gave. I'll pull it all together in just a few moments. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often, for as, often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now here's the part that we normally center in when we use this First Corinthians passage at Lord's Supper time. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with this world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give you directions when I come. So let's make a few comments here about getting it right. Maybe the first question we should answer is, why should we care? I mean, after all, the very nature of what we do here is such that just doing it ought to carry its own weight. So why should we care about getting it right? Why a whole sermon instead of just moving on the way we always do it? Here's the answer to that. It's in verses 27 through 30. Here's the short answer. God takes this seriously. When Paul says to that church, because you're getting this wrong, some of you are sick and some have even died. That makes me, that's what I call a cage rattler. You know what I mean by that? That's one of those things when if you just crashed out there, somebody comes around and just starts rattling your cage, wakes you up, full alert. That ought to do that for us. We got to get this right. What's the big deal about that? 
Why is it such a big deal for God? I mean, after all, this is just one of those things we do in church. Well, it's more than that. You see, the deal is that if we fail at this point, according to what we just read in that passage of Scripture, we make a mockery out of the cross and the whole cross event, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That's serious business. <laughs> My son, and I have two. I'll claim one of them today. I'll, I'll claim them both, but I'll tell you about one of them today. Colin, most of you met him or many of you met him uh, not too long ago. He was here. He's the one who got married just a little, about a year ago now. And um, he, he notoriously is tight on money. You know what I mean by tight? I mean, he squeaks when he walks. That's how tight he is on money. And uh, <laughs> when he was dating this girl who is now his wife, and they dated for, I don't know, four years, I think, something like that. might have been 20. I don't remember. But um, we knew she was part of our family before he did. Let's just put it that way. And so when they were dating, neither one of them had any money. And she's creative. I mean, she's one of these artsy kind of people that just makes me sick, to be real honest with you. But because um, I don't, I can't do that, right? I mean, I can't even buy good art, much less create it. But she can. She does all that kind of stuff. So she impressed upon him because neither one of them had any money. That when it came that season of like whether it was birthdays or Christmas or whatever, when it was gift giving time, that the way they needed to handle that was to make stuff for one another. Oh, my entertainment value went way up when that happened. Because my son is like me. He does, now, he can do great with music. He plays a mean bass guitar, and he's creative with that. But when it comes to, like, art, he's pathetic. And so I would go in, and he's in his room in there. If he could carve out space on the floor from all the junk in there, and he'd be working on something for his girlfriend, who now is his wife, Selena. He was horrible. I mean, no art person would ever even consider it art. They would just, that's garbage. But he would pour himself into it. You ever gotten a gift from somebody like that? Something they made? Teresa and I got a wedding gift. (laughs) We kept it for a long time just because it was good comedic value. It was the ugliest piece of something I ever saw in my life. I mean, they had colors in there that even nature couldn't duplicate. <laughs> so I want you to take that picture. Let's take my son and that piece of art that he made for his girlfriend. And he gave it to her, and <laughs> it was sickening. This is how we knew she was going to be part of the family. She thought it was great. Oh, that's so sweet. Look what he made for me. It's ugly. Go ahead and call it what it is. It's all right. <laughs> She took it. Can you imagine what it would have done to him if he had gone to a garage sale that her mother was having and seen his art for sale at the garage sale for a quarter? You get the picture? Let me, let me make it a little more personal. You ever re-gift something? Isn't it interesting that in our society we have a word called re-gifting? Let's say you go to a Sunday school party this year for Christmas, which is coming up. And at the Sunday school party, somebody gives somebody else the present you gave them last year. 
How's that going to grab you? Those kind of things have a way of hurting us, right? That doesn't even begin to measure up to the seriousness of this gift of salvation. God so loved you that he gave his only son who had been in glory for all eternity past. The scripture tells us that he humbled himself and he became like one of us. And he stepped out of glory into this fallen world because of God's love for you. Subjected himself to the worst that man could do. And over a period of time, they rejected him and they nailed him to a cross. The God of all time, who spoke the words, the worlds came into order, hangs on a tree because he loved you. Doesn't it it amount to a spit in God's face when we come and we just kind of haphazardly do this thing called the Lord's Supper? When we come and remember that sacrifice, we better get it right. Paul says that God takes it seriously. And if he does, then maybe we should as well. It's sinful. It's flat out sinful behavior for us to treat it any less than what it really is. And the appropriate response for us is to come in humility. And the best sense of reverence that we have fall before a holy God on our face rather than just kind of walking in, thumb in our chest saying, Let's do this. One of the ways, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a leap on you here. Make sure you go with me. Paul's referring here to the practices of that early church. And what they had done is they had just taken their normal societal kind of operations and pulled it right into the church and the way they did church. And so as they came in, they came in with all of this uh, leveling out that never occurred in Roman society was not ever going to occur in church. And that is the haves came in and the have-nots came in and never the two shall meet. Here's kind of how that works out. You notice that Paul in this talks about uh, how some come. Let me back it up and I'll read it. Verse... uh, 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another one gets drunk. There's a couple of different elements that are tied to what was going on in first century Roman life in Corinth. First of all, when they had these love feasts, they they would have them and they were like an extended thing, kind of like our day today. And so they would come in and they would have this stuff. But one of the things that would happen is each person would bring what they had. So if you're one of the haves in Roman society and you got, got it on the hip, you got lots of money, and you got it going your way, a couple of things happens. First of all, you bring good food, T-bones, gumbo, and good wine. Not necessarily in that order. But don't let that offend you too much because 
They drank wine. Okay? I'm not suggesting you bring it to our lunch later. Okay? I don't suggest you do that at all. But they would come in and they would bring their own stuff. Now, the host home where the church was meeting would supply the stuff for the Lord's Supper part of it. But everybody else for this love feast, they would bring stuff from their own home. Now, one of the things that that did is what do you think the person who is a business owner would bring compared to a person who was a slave? Remember, first century Roman life, those two are not ever going to eat together in society. And so now you got this dilemma in the church because we got, first of all, we got different food. And you know, people who really got it going on, they're not going to eat slave food because, for, among other things, what would the other moneyed people think if I hung out and ate slave food? If I said to you, we're serving possum and grits over there today, how many of you would stay? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. So that's one thing. They would bring their own food. The other thing is that the people who were the business owners, they'd leave the slaves running, minding the shop, and they'd go early. And so among the food and the good wine stuff that we're talking about, They'd get an early start on that stuff so that by the time the real working class got there, they were already full. They didn't want to eat anymore, and so there's division. Then on top of that, who gets to go inside? And the answer to that is the first ones who get there. Who who are the first ones to get there? The ones who have somebody else running their business. They just kind of waltz in. So they get to go inside the house where you can recline to eat. All those who come later after business shuts down and they take care of all that kind of stuff and they come trailing in at the end of the day, all that's left for them is to be out in the courtyard where you have to either stand or sit down rather than recline, which was the custom. So what you have is on multiple fronts in the Corinthian church, this societal division that creeped in. Now, we might have that problem in the 21st century American church. Matter of fact, I'd say if I wanted to spend a lot of time developing it, I could show you that we do have that classification problem of division in our churches. But I don't want to go there today. I want to just kind of come back down to what we're doing here. I think that it comes down to this basic thing of our habits and our traditions as to how we do church. Our rituals are problematic for us. One of the things that is a move in the church of our day is to do the Lord's Supper on a much more consistent basis. A lot of Baptist churches are going to do the Lord's Supper every week. I'm not a proponent of that. It's not that I don't think it's important. I hope that you're figuring out from this sermon and my history for over two years that this is very important for us that we get it right. But the problem for us is that we always have a problem dealing with ritual. You know what a ritual is? It's that thing that we do so often that we don't even have to think about it anymore. We just do it. We can just kind of go through the motions and we don't have to think whether we're going to do it or not. We just know we're going to do it and this is how we do it. Let me give you a couple of real simple examples of that. What do we do in this church right before we pass out the offering plates? By the way, we're not passing out the offering plates. We're 
passing it so you can pass out money into it. That's, that's a whole other discussion. I don't want that to be offensive or anything. I just don't want you to leave with our plate, okay? We're passing the plate, not passing it out. What do we do every time before we pass out the offering plate? We pray. Why do we do that? It's ritual. Now, let me give you a good reason. I could ask you, here's another one, a side note to that. Why does Brian have you stand up before we do that one? And the answer is so you can get to your wallet easier. <laughs> no, I don't think that's his motive at all. The reason we pray along that line, the reason we pray before we pass the offering is so you have time to write out a check. No, that's not true either. Isn't it interesting? We don't know why we do it that way, but we're going to do it that way. And let me tell you just how serious those rituals are. You let me or Brian change one of those. Actually, we would do that together if we're going to change one of those rituals. Follow us around for a week and see how many people get bent because we changed the ritual. We don't know why we do it, but we're going to do it. Now, I'm not saying rituals are all bad. I'm just saying there's an inherent danger in them. And that is that we begin to just go through the motions and we lose the meaning behind it. When I first started doing weddings, the first wedding I ever did, I included that line that says, if anyone doesn't agree that these people should get married, let them speak now forever, hold their peace. As soon as I said it, I thought, oh, what if someone says something? (laughs) And I asked my pastor, he said, nobody will ever say anything. And I thought to myself, not at mine, because I'll never say that at a wedding again. Why do we do the things we do. Rituals are not necessarily bad, but we have to be on guard that we don't trivialize the activity because we just go through the motions. And if we trivialize this, according to the passage we're reading, it's dangerous ground with God. But you see, the context, normally we take what Paul says here and we say, examine yourself and make sure there's not any sin in you. That's right. But the context that he's talking about is, is there the sin of division in your heart when you come to do this? Wow. Now, see, that opens a whole new door for me when it comes to how we do this. Because I know full well, because I'm just going to estimate this crowd. You want to set record attendance? Let me estimate it, okay? 4,000 people here this morning. I... I I don't bet, okay? I'm not that kind of preacher. I don't bet. But I would bet you. (laughs) Figure of speech, only figure of speech. That in a crowd this size, there are divisions between people in here today. Some of you look across the room and you see so-and-so sitting over there, your heart goes to stone just like that. In just a few moments, you're going to take these elements and you're going to plop them in your mouth and you're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. But your spirit says, but you shouldn't have saved that person over there because they're just mean. That's us. That's human nature. I got, I'll tell you, I, I get it. We got to get this right. When we get it wrong, what happens is the Lord's Supper then begins to divide us 
rather than unite us. So much of what we do in the name of worship, the time that we should be most unified as a body, divides us. Well, I don't like that. Nang, 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 nang. Well, it was, sure was hot in there. Hey, you're not wearing a suit standing under lights. It's not nearly hot out there, okay? And you're not fat like I am. It's hot. I don't want to worship when I'm hot. <laughs> Whatever your chosen thing that pulls you right out of worship is, be careful that you don't allow that stuff that is so much a part of the world in which we live that we don't pull that into the church and make a mockery of this supper. Let me remind you what this supper is about. Jesus said, Paul quotes it in this passage. You remember the old days? We used to have Lord's Supper tables. Now we've got one over there, the other building. Remember the old days we had Lord's Supper tables in Baptist churches? We had engraved stuff across the front. Remember that? Well, what did we, every, every Baptist church you ever went in had one of these. What does it say? Do this in remembrance of me. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. Spoken first to his disciples in an upper room hours before he was to be arrested, manhandled. And cruelly nailed to a cross. Jesus said to that gathered group of disciples, you do this to remember me. Part of the reason he did that is because he knew that we all have a tendency tendency to forget. You do this in remembrance of me and what I've done. Now for us, this is one of two ordinances, that's ordinance with an I in there. Ordinance with no I means ammunition, okay? Baptist churches are full of ordinance, but we have two ordinances. One of them is the Lord's Supper. An ordinance is that which Jesus told us to do, and we do it strictly because he said do it. This is one of them. The other one is baptism that we did before. He specifically told us a lot of things he told us to do, like make disciples. We've had that discussion here. We're going to keep having that discussion here. But he said very specifically to us, you make sure that you perpetually remember my sacrifice, the Lord's Supper. And you make sure that you perpetually baptize those people who accept him as their Savior. We do those two things. That's one of the reasons we do them today when we're gathered together. It unites us. It helps us to come together or at least the design does. And then we have to choose, will it be uniting for us or will we just get it wrong and keep practicing just for the sake of practice? Let's get it right. As we come to this time, I'm going to go ahead and ask the deacons to come on forward, if you will, if you're going to help us serve today. As we come to this time, I think it's a good time for us to stop and to evaluate.
Paul says, let each of you evaluate yourself as there's sin in your life. And especially today, I want you to answer this question. Am I at odds with somebody in this room? And if you are, right there where you sit, you can confess that and get that right. That's half of the equation. You need to confess it before God and let him know that you're sorry about that and let him take that sin away. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's half of the equation for you because the other half is you need to go catch that person when we're done and you need to get it right with them then. Okay? Don't be divided when we come and gather now at the foot of the cross and remember the incredible loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're privileged today to have Brother Parks Walker with us. Now, I got to tell you, there's lots, lots of folks in this world that I love, and Parks is one of the newer ones in my circle of people. I came a couple of years ago, a little over that. Parks is founding pastor of this church. Some of you have joined this church. You didn't know who he was. This is him right here. He's going to help us with this time. What a great picture for us to have him here to remind us of those early days of this church when it was a handful of people rather than 4,000 like I said today. (laughs) And we come together and we worship at the foot of the cross and we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. Are you ready for that? Let's bow our heads for just a moment. A time of personal, one-on-one, you and God. God, search us. Try our hearts. Give us keen insight into those places in our lives where we have let the world slip in and nudged you to the side. Help us to get this right today. We confess our sin before you. We ask you to forgive us. Give us everything we need to get this right. And if it's problems with people on the other side of the room or on the other side of the country, give us the grace that we need and the strength that we need and the courage that we need to let go of those things, those offenses and those harbored ill feelings. Set us free from the bondage of sin. Use this time for your glory is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.